The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... A landmark civil rights law for people with disabilities recently turned 20 years old. And part one of secure and efficient packing for your next trip. Welcome to ACB Reports for August 2010. On or near July 26th, events were held throughout the nation to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Attendees of the 49th Annual Conference and Convention of the American Council of the Blind learned more about this important law during a presentation by Sam Begenstoss, Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights from the U.S. Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. His presentation was entitled, Assessing the ADA on its 20th anniversary. It's really a pleasure for me to be here uh, at the American Council of the Blind, which has been such a great partner, and we've ho- we hope we've been a great partner to them in our efforts to enforce the ADA and the equal rights of people with disabilities. The ADA, which is reaching its 20th anniversary in just a few days, is really a landmark. It is the Emancipation Proclamation for People with Disabilities, as Tom Harkin said. It is what brought down the wall of exclusion for people with disabilities and made people with disabilities finally equal citizens with equal rights to participate in all aspects of American life. We're very excited to celebrate the 20th anniversary. I have to say, you know, we probably expected after 20 years we would have made more progress than we have, but we have made a lot of progress, and I think it's worth noting the progress that we have made. In the Department of Justice, we are working every day to make the promise of the ADA a reality. We have been working tirelessly since the beginning of the Obama administration. I was talking to uh, Lainey Feingold just a few minutes ago, and I I noted this is my one-year anniversary on this job. Uh, I I am the person leading uh, our disability rights enforcement as the appointee of President Obama. Uh, And in one year on the job, I I think we've accomplished a lot. It's a time that I look back and say, what have we accomplished? I think we've accomplished a lot, but there's so much more left to do. Uh, We have tried in the Civil Rights Division generally to say that we are open for business after a period of time, oh, about eight years, in which the Civil Rights Division did not do uh, the traditional job of enforcing civil rights laws. Um, When a time when people in the advocacy community were afraid to come to the Civil Rights Division for support because they had a fear, and it was a legitimate fear, that what the division would do is turn around and support the people who are trying to deny their rights. And so we've recognized that we have to build up trust again with the community of people who support civil rights laws, who benefit from civil rights laws. That's the disability community. That's the civil rights community generally. Um, Our Attorney General, Eric Holder, says that the Civil Rights Division is the crown jewel of the Justice Department and that the pursuit of justice is an impatient thing and he's an impatient attorney general and I feel very impatient too. I feel like we have so much to do. When I look around, there are 112 employees in the disability rights section of the Civil Rights Division. That's a lot of employees, but when you compare that to all of the violations of the ADA we see across the country by states, by local governments, by businesses, it's not nearly enough. It's a drop in the bucket. And even as the president has been 
very kind and generous to the Civil Rights Division in increasing our staff substantially, we still can't keep up with all of the legitimate complaints we receive, and we try very hard to follow up on them. So I am very impatient in trying to step up our efforts in trying to move ahead. We are helped in this by having a dedicated and now energized group of career staff um, who have been working for years to enforce civil rights, enforce the ADA, and who didn't get a lot of support in the past in doing so. We have let them loose. They're going. They're off doing incredible things that you have seen some of and will see more of. We have a very energetic and demanding leader in Tom Perez, the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights. And I can tell you that Tom Perez feels disability rights down to his bones. Uh, He is is a person who is 100% committed to the goals of the ADA, as am I. Let me tell you a little bit of what we have done in this administration in enforcing the ADA, and and let me talk a little bit about what's coming up in the future, and particularly with a focus on the issues that people in this room may care especially about. I will say one of my two most significant priorities as the Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General who's in charge of disability rights enforcement, one of my two most significant priorities is access to technology for people with disabilities. We are seeing... We are, we, are, we are seeing what, what is unfortunately a divide growing as technology expands and advances, as people can benefit greatly from all kinds of emerging technology, and the things we can do with technology are things we couldn't have dreamed of when I was a kid or, heck, you know, when I was in college. As technology develops, people with disabilities cannot be left out because it means being left out of the mainstream of American economic, civic, social, and political life. And that is what the ADA is all about preventing. In our work with the Kindle, um, this was, as, as many of you in this room know, probably all of you in this room know, the American Council of the Blind, along with some others, filed complaints against universities that were requiring the use of the Amazon Kindle, a tremendously wonderful device, everybody says. I've never used it personally, but I hear that it's a tremendously wonderful device that has all kinds of opportunities for people, and that if it were accessible, would provide people with visual disabilities for the first time a truly integrated experience, right? Getting exactly the same materials as their classmates get, not having to wait months while they find the accessible volume or rip out the pages and scan them and then use the ineffective scanned versions, but for the first time an actual integrated experience if it were accessible. But, of course, it was not accessible. It is not accessible. When universities were using the the Kindle in a special program, in an inaccessible way, we received complaints and we acted. We acted with ACB, with other groups, in a case right here in Arizona, in the Arizona State University case, um, in which we entered into an agreement with the university in which they cannot use inaccessible electronic readers. Now, we think the right course is for them to become accessible. We have entered into agreements with numerous other colleges and universities, with Princeton University, with Reed College, with Case Western, with Pace University. And what we did there, acting quickly in response to an emerging problem, I think has had a major impact on the way people in colleges and universities and technology companies think about their obligations to provide equal services, equal access to people with disabilities. Right When they instituted this program with an inaccessible device that could, let's be honest, easily be made accessible... Right? It's not difficult to make these accessible. 
Um, when they did this, what, what were they doing? They were totally ignoring people with, people with vision disabilities, people with all kinds of disabilities that prevent them from effectively using the, the, effectively using the device. And what we said is you have to take the interests of people with disabilities seriously as equal people, as equal participants in all of your programs and all of your activities. And I think they've heard us. When we go around now to the trade association meetings of the colleges and the universities and the schools, one of the first things they bring up now is the Kindle and other electronic devices. What about electronic blackboards? Or do they have to be accessible? What do you think I say to that? Yes, they have to be accessible. And so people are thinking about these issues now for the first time. Access to technology is exceptionally important. We have taken the position historically at the Justice Department that goods and services provided over the Internet are covered by Title III of the ADA. That... Thank you. That is a position that has been a consistent position since the Clinton administration, but it's not a position we've taken very publicly or assertively. A couple of months ago, I testified before the House Judiciary Committee, and I made clear that we are continuing to apply the ADA to goods and services provided over the Internet, that we are looking for appropriate cases, and that we will continue forward in rulemaking proceedings to make sure that everybody knows if they're providing goods and services over the Internet, again, not very big changes need to be made in order to make these accessible. They have to take the interests of people with disabilities equally seriously as those of all of their other customers. It will be in their interest. They will get a customer base, but they have to treat them equally. In the area of testing accommodations, I know a significant issue for the blind community. Well, in, in the area of testing accommodations, I can say right now, probably as we speak, my colleague, Mazen Basrawi, who is a counsel to Tom Perez, who, who works with me among our political leadership in the Civil Rights Division, he's in court in Maryland arguing on behalf of a few individuals who were denied JAWS and Zoom text and other accommodations to work on the multi-state bar examination, which, as everyone knows, this has been a very significant issue. We are pushing on testing issues as well. I know we have some complaints that we are reviewing and proceeding on investigating from folks in the American Council of the Blind, and it's something we're going to push forward much more significantly as we move forward. We are in areas of effective communication. In another case out of Arizona, Harkins Amusements case that was decided by the Ninth Circuit, we took the position that both captioning and video description were required by the ADA for movie theaters. The Ninth Circuit, Judge Kaczynski, ordinarily a conservative judge, agreed with us, and we have been pushing that forward. We are going to do more in this area in the field of issuing regulations and guidance, etc., so look forward to that. We know this is an absolutely essential issue to people with disabilities, all disabilities, having full and equal access to everyday life. In the area of service animals, we continue to receive many, many, many complaints, a shocking number of complaints 20 years after the adoption of the ADA about inappropriate denial of access to people who use service animals. We had a case that strains credulity to believe it. If you were to write it down as fiction, people would say it's unbelievable. Nobody could possibly act like this. We had a case in which there was a lawyer who denied an individual access to his law office for a deposition because she used a service animal. A lawyer, an attorney at law. You know, he said she'll soil the carpet, I think is what, I have a very fancy carpet. And, And so we got this complaint, immediately acted on it, and threatened a lawsuit against this attorney, who I think eventually found another attorney who wised up and said, this is untenable. How can you possibly do this? We got a consent decree as well as some compensatory damages against this attorney. And I think it sent a very strong signal. But it's, it's shocking to me. If even attorneys don't know, if businesses across the country don't know that they have a requirement to treat people with service animals like any other customers, what are we going to do? We have to step up our enforcement. And that is something we are doing.
in another case that, that we brought, we, we were also pushing in, in areas of transportation, accessible transportation. There was a case that we intervened in in Jackson, Mississippi, brought by the Jackson, Mississippi branch of the American Council of the Blind, actually on behalf of teachers at the school for the blind for inaccessible transportation systems in Jackson, Mississippi. This is not a problem limited to Jackson, and it's one we're looking at all over the place. We got a very strong consent decree, including very strong provisions and a monitor, and we are going to continue pushing that forward. Uh, We have many more things we're doing. As you know, the 20th anniversary of the ADA is July 26th. We have a very long torturous, unfortunately unduly delayed rulemaking proceeding as we try to update our ADA regulations uh, to bring them into the 21st century. Now we're a decade into the 21st century. Of course, the ADA regulations have not been updated for 18 years. It's kind of shocking. Um, We are pushing very hard to get that done so that we can celebrate that. We are pushing very hard to extend our regulatory authority and our regulatory pronouncements into areas that we haven't said a whole lot about, like some of the areas I've talked about today, like the internet, captioning and video description. We are pushing very hard to make clear to businesses and to governments that we will work with you to make you accessible. We will give you the technical assistance you need. I think that the Justice Department has been very good over the past 20 years at giving technical assistance. But if you do not, after 20 years, comply with the ADA and you don't take our technical assistance, we will sue you, we will take you to court, we will get the most severe remedies we can against you. Because we know, we know that you need carrots and sticks, and the carrots have been there for a long time, but the sticks have never been fully tried, and so we are using them very aggressively. I'm very interested to hear from people as to what they think are the emerging issues. I will say, you know, we sit in Washington. The Civil Rights Division has about 800 staff, about 112 are in the disability rights section. Uh, I try to spend a lot of time getting out of Washington, but, you know, most of my time is in Washington. You feel very isolated. The issues that we are addressing are issues that we feel like are central frontier important issues. But it's very difficult for us to know where the biggest problems are, for us to know what the most significant issues that we should take on are, unless we hear from you. And so I'd like to just extend to everyone an open invitation to let me know of what are the problems. Now, sometimes we can act on them, sometimes we can't. Sometimes we we would like to act on them, but we don't have the resources. But unless we hear from you, we don't know what are the significant issues that we need to be taking on. My email address, samuel.bagenstoss at usdoj.gov. Contact me. I will make sure that the issue that you raise gets to the appropriate person. We have a very active complaints unit that does hundreds and hundreds of investigations each year. We get involved in a lot of litigation, much more litigation going forward. And we we need to hear from you because just to return to the beginning, what I found when I came into the Civil Rights Division as a political appointee in this administration was that we had lost something that we had when I was a career attorney in the Civil Rights Division in the 1990s. What we had lost was our partnership, our partnership with the civil rights community, our partnership with people with disabilities, with, with people who are being discriminated against. We had lost our ability to respond quickly to the problems that are emerging, and we lost that because we shut ourselves out. And I think we now have to learn and we have to train our our staff to learn, and I think they do want to learn, how to reach out, how to go to people and say, look, we're not going to come in on the wrong side. If you come to us with a problem, we're not going to say, oh, yeah, you know what, that sounds right, and we're going to take the side of the business or of the state or of the employer. 
you can come to us. It's safe to come to us. We can talk through things. We are, we are friends. There are things we can't tell you because we're the government and, that's, and there's all kinds of weird kinds of confidentiality with the government. But we will be open. We will be transparent. If you want to meet with us, if you think there's an issue that we're going to address wrongly in our regulations, ask for a meeting with us. We will meet with you. We want to hear from you. So my pitch to you is reach out to us, let us know what you need. We are trying very hard to be incredibly aggressive because we don't know how much time we have, but we know that it's been 20 years and 20 years is too long. So thank you very much. Sam Begenstoss, Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, was recorded at the 49th Annual Conference and Convention of the American Council of the Blind in Phoenix, Arizona on July 13th. If you need additional information about the Americans with Disabilities Act, call the ADA hotline toll-free at 1-800-514-0301 during Eastern Time Business Hours Monday through Friday. That number again is 1-800-514-0301. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports. Spending a week at a national conference is almost like moving. Deciding what to pack for that trip, or for any other trip for that matter, is a big challenge. Then comes the even bigger stress of getting everything into the suitcase twice for both the outgoing and return portions of the trip. While that overstuffed suitcase from the annual conference and convention of the American Council of the Blind is still on your mind and perhaps still a pain in your back, here's Lynn Cooper from the Mirrors Project with part one of Secure and Efficient Packing for Your Next Trip. What we're essentially doing is taking a little teeny-weeny closet with us when we travel, and often we are traveling for a purpose. But what we're also doing is we're going with an objective, and and that objective involves social, business, um, many different events that we have to be very in tune with as far as what do I need to wear, what do I need to carry, what do I need to have with me, what are the materials I need. So it's very important that we remember that packing isn't just dumping a bunch of things and hoping for the best. We're going to be looking at what we do in advance of packing, so our preparation for packing, Then we're going to look at packing itself and, of course, just a few words about unpacking and what happens on the way back. I personally hate to pack, and it is because I have too many options. In this day and age, most of us aren't going around with just one pair of pants, one shirt, one pair of socks, and one pair of shoes in our closets. We have a myriad of things. So I think that is one of the reasons we really need to spend a lot of time, at least as much time as we do on packing itself, in the planning of our packing. And that involves, A, number one, a list. A packing list will do many things. It will help us try to avoid last-minute craziness in packing and forgetting things and relying on one's memory. I don't know about our listeners, but mine isn't what it used to be. It's also a boon to repacking on the return. Always a good idea to keep a copy of it with you. It's a great help for doing your next trip, whether it be the same destination or just another trip in general. And it's wonderful, Mike, in case of lost or stolen bags, because when you go to report that at the airline office, they're going to ask you for a list of what the contents were. 
We want a list including everything, toiletries, supplies, clothing, and accessories. I just take a notepad with me for at least a month before, and if I'm on the subway, if I'm in a meeting, wherever, and something, you know, light bulb goes over my head, ah, that's what I need to pack, I can't forget that, boom, it goes down on the list. Another real important idea before we even put our hand to that luggage is to check the weather for one's destination. Now, it's amazing to me how many people forget to do this. Uh, We have to check the weather because, as we know, with climate changes, places that are normally hot may suddenly be cool, vice versa. Then what we do, Mike, is to check your agenda and the activities at your destination. We want to think, wait a minute, okay, I have to give a presentation. What are they expecting me to wear? What are the dress codes for these meetings? What kind of a setting is it? Is it ultra-casual? Is it going to be picnicky? Am I going to be required to dress more formally, more business casual, whatever it is? We want to look at having a capsule wardrobe, and we've talked about starting with a couple basic colors that we have in our wardrobe, whether it be khaki, navy, black, gray, and then taking a few pieces and working that into a capsule wardrobe and very important that we make every piece of clothing and accessories too, shoes, scarves, you know, handbags and all that kind of stuff, do at least double duty. Pack nothing that only plays one role. Very good idea, and I know there's a number of sites to buy these things, travel sites, drip dry, non-iron, shirts, pants. There's many, many things nowadays that are great for traveling. Also, a good idea is if we know that we have this outfit and we're going to be taking that with us and we don't need to wear that outfit for the week preceding the trip, what I like to do is to have a garment bag hanging somewhere on a hook in the bedroom, on a clothes rack or something in front of me, and then put everything that I want to take in that bag so that I know that that is in there and then I don't have to go scurrying around searching for it before I pack. Remember that we can dress up or dress down an outfit, ladies and gentlemen. One necktie that can work with a number of different uh, shirts. Ladies, we can take a scarf. We can take a belt. We can take shoes that can be maybe mid-heel and go from casual to evening. We want to also remember that most times, People are in the same boat, so worry not about, oh gosh, people have seen me wearing that skirt yesterday or wearing that pair of pants yesterday. With the cost of airlines, as all of our listeners probably are aware, airlines are charging for bags. In most cases, most airlines, $25 first bag, $15 a second bag, and some airlines it's $25.25. And then if that isn't offensive enough, we have the overweight bags, which if they're 50 pounds or one pound over in most cases, you will be charged anywhere from $50 to $125. So we really have to be concerned about every piece in our luggage doing double, if not triple, duty. You want to buy Ziploc bags. I buy the extra-large Ziploc bags, and I think they're two-gallon. They're a little hard to find, but they are out there. And small, all different size Ziploc bags, because what you're going to do Assuming that people are going to open your bag for TSA, that's the government security, one out of maybe 20, 30 bags at random are going to be checked. Well, when they open your bag, you don't want underwear flying out and this and that flying out. If everything is in a Ziploc bag, 
you're going to know where it is when you get to your destination. You can take it out of that bag, launder it, put it in that bag, and you're going to have some ability to be organized. I want to make sure that I have rubber bands. One idea for rubber bands is you don't necessarily want to pack your full heavy bottle of shampoos or what have you because that's going to be way too heavy. You're going to rely on the hotel having those. We want to make sure we call in advance, make sure the hotel does supply things like an iron, ironing board, and shampoos. But if you have a little shampoo bottle and then they also have a little bottle of conditioner and a little bottle of lotion, if one is visually impaired, it's going to be difficult to judge which is which. So you can have the person who sees you to your room. You can have a human mirror do this. You want to take a rubber band and put it around the shampoo so that when you grab, you know that there's one rubber band on the shampoo. You're not going to mistake that for the conditioner. Maybe you want to put a different number of rubber bands on the lotion so that there's no washing your hair with lotion, vice versa. One other thing you want to start collecting is the plastic dry cleaner bags. If you send things to the dry cleaners, environmentally it's a good idea to take things home without it bring your own Garmin bag. But if you do have those, I tend to roll those up and store those. They're really going to come in handy for packing. So we need a suitcase, don't we? We're going to think to ourselves, if I'm going on a place that is more uh, business or where I'm going to need to dress up a bit more, a hard-sided, meaning something other than a duffel bag, is a good idea. Before the trip, at least this week before, I like to check all the zippers on my bag and make sure if you have an ID tag that it is either hidden or there is a cover on it, and never put your home, a good idea is never to put your home address on there, put your office, wherever, but do not put your home on there, that's too vulnerable. If you're buying new luggage, you want to get something medium size, and that is great because you can take it for a short trip and have excess room in the bag for souvenirs and what have you, or you can really pack it full if you're going for a longer trip. Remember, too, that 95% of the bags out there are black. So you want to have a little distinguishing characteristic. I have a plaid Burberry ribbon on the handle of my bags. But if one is visually impaired, you want to have something tactile that can be wrapped around the handle so that you can't identify that bag or ask someone who is helping you to identify your bag on the carousel. Many bags have a handle on the end, they have another one on the side, and it's a good idea to put it on both because you don't know which way this thing's coming down the line. Exactly. That's a very, very, very good idea. And don't be shy. Go to bold colors. Some people have macrame or crocheted maybe a two-inch long little strand in day-glow colored yarn that comes off of that handle so that it can be easily seen. And if you are grabbing your bag to make sure that it is indeed your bag, then you can feel the little handle. And I also put Braille on the back of my name tag so that I can reach down and touch the name tag and know quickly that it is indeed my name tag on there. That's a brilliant idea, because if you are having somebody help you, they are probably busy themselves, they're wanting to rush away, they're doing their good deed, but they're not really wanting to stand there and go through three or four bags, so you're right. If you've got Braille, a Braille uh, tape, Mike, I think that's absolutely a wonderful idea. If you're buying new luggage, buy that bright colored piece of luggage. You're going to know that it is on the carousel, I recently had to go look through an entire room full of bags of 
they had trouble finding my bag. And if it was in a very bright color amidst a sea of black bags, it would be easier for me or for the person helping me to find. Then we also want to make sure that the uh, luggage wheels are working. The wheeled bags are great. They are so easy. There's even some wheeled bags now that I prefer that are multi-directional, which is nice, because if we're in a tight space, we don't necessarily have to back it up and just go in one direction. They actually go sideways, back and forth. Lynn will have more information on the subject of packing for a trip in an upcoming episode of ACB Reports. Meanwhile, if you have a helpful packing tip that you'd like to share, visit Lynn at her website, lyncooper.us, or send it to ACB Reports by way of the American Council of the Blind. The address is 2200 Wilson Boulevard, Suite 650, Arlington, Virginia, 22201. The email address for contacting ACB Reports directly is temporarily out of order. For now, please send your comments or suggestions regarding ACB reports to the ACB National Office at the address just given, or call them at the phone number which follows as we wrap up ACB reports for August 2010. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on Radio Information Services Nationwide on Side 4 of the Braille Forum Cassette Edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.